This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. I don't think anybody else is crazy enough to have done what we've done. The good news here is after another 20 or 30 minutes, I'll never have to put this costume on again. But at the time, it actually wasn't funny because they were talking about having to write Robin out of the script. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Lux Edition, the podcast where we dive deep into classic pop culture. I am Bill Sebald, and I'm here, as always, with my faithful co-host, Casey Shearer. How you doing, Bill? Good. How are you? So today we have one of our interview shows, and we spoke with uh, the the brilliant, absolutely brilliant uh, Burt Ward. And why, why do I call him brilliant? Because he is a master at telling stories. He had us laughing, you know, the, the entire time. Um, talk about like, I love doing these conversations because they, sometimes they just go off the, the, the rails sometimes. And he took us into um, his company. He has a dog food company. It's called gentlegiants.com. And I didn't realize how big that company was. I didn't realize how well-respected that company was. And I got to admit at some point during this interview, it seemed like we were doing a little bit of an infomercial, but I was like really into it because he's got a, a product. Him and his wife have a product that really do a lot to save, um, you know, save years on dogs. Their dog food keeps dogs living longer. So hell of a claim, but I, you know, he backed it up with uh, some evidence and, you know, I was fascinated by that. what did yeah, you think of the interview? I thought it was great, man. Yeah. And like you said, uh, Bert, Bert and his wife were doing absolutely fantastic things with this dog food and uh, just getting dogs to live way, way past their uh, expectancy. So, yeah, it's really great. We're, we're definitely going to uh, be promoting this dog food. I'm going to get some. I mean, we my mother-in-law had heard of it. She goes, oh, yeah, that stuff is great, but it's hard to find. So we'll see. I haven't actually tried to buy it yet. Well, I know you can get it online as Bert talks about. He has a website. Uh, you can check our website out, deluxeedition.show. And uh, be sure to join our Facebook group, Deluxe Edition, yet another pop culture podcast, The Group on Facebook. And uh, we've been doing fan questions on a lot of these interview shows. And uh, it seems like the the guests really like the fan questions quite a bit. So, Yeah. Especially the, who asked the question about the, uh, the, I don't even know how to say this. You gotta just wait, wait for the interview. Oh, but there was one point, man. Yeah. All right. Wait for the interview. But there was one point where I was trying so hard to, to get this one line in. Um, <laughs> all right. So I'm going to, I'm going to spoil it a little bit. All for this joke that I wanted to tell you that I was going to try to get in it. Cause I want to know if I, if, if I was uh, remiss by not pushing it through or did I, luckily uh avoid myself some major embarrassment so he talks about something that it's actually well known like he robin wears these green tights right and robin is is a male and males have these protrusions down below 
And they said, hey, Robin, we need to figure out, hey, Bert, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's like Robin and Bert are like the same guy. I mean, they are both icons. So they were like, we need to do something about this bulge down there. And they gave him pills. And I, w- I was going to go, pills for, for Dick Grayson. Yeah, pills for Dick. Dick pills. <laughs> and I was, it was just about to come out of my mouth. That may not have gone over too well. No, that would have been good. I, I mean, I, I would have liked it. <laughs> he had a great sense of humor. He probably would have laughed too. Yeah, I'm sure he would have. Yeah, this was a great, great interview, man. This is uh, I, I keep saying this every time. I keep saying this was one of my favorites. Well, they're they're getting a lot better. I think we're tightening up. Um, I still fucking can't stand that we have to do all this on Zoom. But Casey, we have a plan to sort of get into a room and make you know the the video a little bit and the audio to be a little bit you know tighter. But, you know, we're still in this pandemic. Zoom is still the way to go. And we're making it work, man. The show's getting good. Yeah, absolutely, man. So you want to dive in? Let's dive in. All right, buddy. Here's Bert Ward. Hey, Bert, thank you very much for joining us today. We have a few questions for you. We're kids from the 80s. So to us, Batman was just massive. When you got into it, was Batman already a real big cultural phenomenon? Or was it sort of an underground, unknown thing at that time? Batman was a comic book and it had been around since the forties. And there were people that were comic book fans, just like there are today. It wasn't, I don't think a major portion of our, you know, audience, but there were people enjoyed comic books and, and ABC decided to, um, as a mid season replacement in 1966, take on Batman and they got in touch with 20th Century Fox, and 20th Century Fox got in touch with Greenway Productions, a very highly respected executive producer, William Dozier, who had worked for CBS and done the Hallmark Hall of Fame movies and stuff like that, was hired to create this Batman television series as a mid-season replacement. And they were banking on the fact that the comic book had been around for 25 years and that there was a certain minimum audience that they thought they would have but they tried to figure, since nobody had ever brought a comic book to life, they were trying to figure how to how to do this and how to hold an audience. And they decided on a on a concept that would be campy, satirical, multi level superhero worship for kids watching Batman and Robin racing around in the Batmobile, fighting heinous villains, climbing walls, all the kind of superhero stuff that kids would love. And they saw that as the hero worship for kids. And for the adults, they saw the nostalgia of the comic book. You know, people remembering with fondness. Oh, I remember growing up watching or reading these comic books. And then the hardest audience to try to get were the teenagers and college kids. Because in the 60s, that's the period of time when there was everybody, the flower children. Everybody wanted to be outside. People wanted to be cruising the the local uh, drive-in, you know, uh, restaurant, you know. Or whatever on a Friday night and nobody wanted to be at home in other words so how did they capture that audience they captured that audience by coming out with st- stylized scripts that were written very funny played very straight but for the college kids and the and the teenagers to get them to actually watch Adam and I added the double meanings and the very suggestive things that we said that in those days were oh you can I can't say that we had the censors in every week some weeks 
coming after us saying, you can't say that, you can't do that, you did this. And, oh, really? Gee, we never thought that would cause that reaction. You know what I mean? But it grabbed the – so we had a huge audience on our opening night on January 12, 1966. We had a 55-share that meant that of all the televisions that were on in North America that night, okay, all the televisions, you're talking about Mexico, United States, and Canada, that 55% of every television that was on was watching Batman. And the other 45% of the televisions were sharing local programming, regional programming. The other two networks at the time were CBS and NBC. ABC was only a syndicated network. And it was Batman and Bewitched that actually made ABC the third network. So it was huge. And after the first night, you almost can't conceive of how popular our show was. The number one, and because it was on twice a week, number one and number two show in the entire world. When we came out with our Batman movie about six months later, a theatrical film, we uh, did a tour of New York. We had a, a, a bus with 17 police on the bus with us. There was anywhere from 50 to 100 police at each of these theaters that we were going to attempt to go to 36 theaters in three days. <clears throat> we only got to 33 because it was just, it was too dangerous. I mean, the police were like armed, and, you know, you know, arm locked, like three deep on each side and wood barriers as we would get off the bus to try to go into the theater where they would stop the movie, you know, and we'd come out. And the people crushing, would crush these people. And like I had my cape torn off three times in three days, not by anybody trying to hurt you, just people just wanting to touch, just, a, just, it was just the most exciting thing in the world. I mean, p- women had their hair cut in Batman hairstyles. Kids were taking bath towels with clothespins, holding them together, jumping off their couches. There was actually a problem in London where kids were jumping off the roof of their houses and getting hurt. I mean, wanting to try to be Batman and Robin. It was a phenomena that was so amazingly gigantic. And their merchandise became the number one merchandise in the entire world, whether they were Mattel metal Batmobiles or Batman underoos or, you know, they're just everything you can imagine. And even more recently in the, uh, the, the big gambling casinos, there are 11-foot-tall Batman one-armed bandits with these pictures of Adam and I. There's four photos of each of us, but they're like double or triple life-size photos on this 11-foot one-armed bandit. Also, there's a fabulous pinball game that was put out that Adam and I each did 300 lines of dialogue. So, you know, we're actually, when you get a, you know, hit the the ball here or there, you get a response from Adam or I with something that we would say from the show. I mean, this is a $50,000 machine to buy. I mean, these are expensive items. So it was really a huge hit. And in reruns, I mean, and one of the things that really gets me is that when I would make appearances like at these comic cons and things, and I would meet people that would say things to me like, where I grew up was kind of a rough neighborhood and I could have ended up on the wrong side of the law, but I watched Batman, believe it or not, it changed my life. And I got into law enforcement, all right? You know, I got into some kind of, you know, became a firefighter or something to do, you know, to try to help things. So we affected people very strongly. And it was, also at the time when Adam and I would meet people, 
you know, if, if somebody meets a, a celebrity of sorts, they, you know, they say, oh, yeah, that's remember, I remember that joke. But if you say Batman to someone, people get this kind of a grin across their eyes, a twinkle in their eye. Because they know that we used to say that we put on our tights to put on the world. We actually reached through in, in our own way, tried to reach through the television set and grab our kid audience and adult audience through the television and involve them. Because at the time Batman was made, most television was very, what I would call, third party. People are sitting in their home. They're watching these people and these people and all the interaction. But it's just a show. We, through our dialogue and through the way we looked into the camera and stuff like that, we were trying to communicate with our audience. And I think it was very successful because Batman just became the biggest hit. Uh, Adam and I would go out to sign autographs. The average line to wait to get an autograph was like five and a half hours. People would be holding their children. By the time they got up to the front of the line, the kids were already asleep sometimes. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it, we felt bad, but what could we do? You know, Adam used to get on the microphone because we'd always have a microphone. We want to try to encourage people, think positively. Adam would get on the microphone and say something like, well, uh, I've got great news for the audience out there. Things are really moving. Our line is now up to an inch an hour, you know. <laughs> So that's, good. that's what that's what it was like. It was, it was a wonderful time in a in a simpler world than we have now. I wasn't aware that that you two actually contributed to some of the uh, double entendres and some of the things that, you know, we see through now. But as a kid, they, they went right over my head. Yeah, well, we actually did all of them. We, they weren't written into the script. And to give you an idea, because there were so many effects on Batman – Instead of having a normal-sized crew of about 30 people, our crew ranged on any given, depending on the uh, the effects that were being done, up to 80 people at a time. And all these people are trying to make these effects work, you know, whatever the, the, the giant birthday cake that was uh, quicksand or whatever it was. I mean, they're all, man, going nuts trying to make these things work. And Adam and I were basically left to ourselves. In other words... The director would say something like, well, you, you guys are in the Batmobile and you have this dialogue. Or um, Adam, Bert, you guys are at the Bat computer, or, uh, you know, whatever. But that was it. Nobody in the three and a half years of filming ever told me how to say a line or asked me to say it differently. And Adam and I had this amazing, wonderful friendship. I, I met him 15 minutes before the screen test that both of us screen tested together coincidentally and uh, after five minutes of, of talking together he and i started laughing and we never stopped laughing for more than 50 years i mean we just were real got along really really great you know and um at when i started i was only 19 years old he was 37 so there's like a 17 year difference and and then on the on the set i mean all the crew on the set i mean these are the pros that shot major movies and stuff so they're all like in their 50s and 60s you know i mean there was nobody my age or even close to my age on the set so for somebody young at that age you know you go on a cold sound stage and you're in a costume and you got makeup and you sit around for 45 minutes to shoot for 30 seconds and then you sit around for another 45 minutes to shoot for another 30 seconds i mean it was not exactly the glamour that people think that hollywood is yeah, and this was your first role, if I'm correct. Yes, I can't imagine right. what you came into. It was the first thing I ever tried out for, even. 
Really? Wow. Yeah. I mean, you probably said Batman, it's a well-known franchise uh, to some of the audience, but it's never going to be that big. It's a mid-season replacement. So that must have, sh- hopefully I'm not assuming, but I, I bet that just shocked you as a, as a first-time actor. Like, this is just impossible for me to wrap my head around it all. No, there's a little bit more to it. I had no idea what the show was about. I was working for my father selling real estate on the weekends and going to UCLA, studying uh, acting at UCLA. Also, I was studying professionally with one of the top coaches at the time in Hollywood. So I was very serious about being an actor, but I hadn't tried out for anything. And when I helped my father sell a house to this producer, I asked him if he could would be kind enough to help me. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'm going to send you to an agent and see if they can help you get some work. So he sent me to the agent, and this uh, it was a small agency, but the agent wasn't very encouraging. He says, look, I can't get work for the actors I've got. I would never take anybody new. The only reason I would take you is because this producer sent me to you, and I have to do it politically, and don't expect to work for a year. And if you got a job, you'll have maybe one line. All right? But that's not too encouraging, is it? So I said, okay, okay, because I was still young and very naive and... So um, about three weeks later, I got a phone call from someone in his office that said, oh, there's something over at uh, 20th Century Fox. We have your name on the list. I said, well, what is it? And they said, we, I don't, we don't know what it is. They're just casting, looking for a young guy. Going to go over there, you know, you got a 430 appointment. Go, go over there tomorrow. So I drove there and they let me park on the lot and they directed me to a bungalow. And I walked in and, I, and, and, they, and, and they say, okay, uh, you know, your name, I gave my name. It's okay, here, we will let you meet the casting director. And I met the casting director. And uh, we talked for just a couple of minutes. He said, would you like to meet the executive producer? I said, sure. I mean, I figured everybody got to meet the executive producer. Well, that's not true, but I didn't know it, right? So I was, in, you know, I walked in to the executive producer's office. And I guess maybe that because I hadn't been rejected, hadn't been knocked around so many actors have been so emotionally destroyed i think by the time they actually get a role because they've been rejected and it can be really harsh you know Uh, but i was you know this is my first time right so i had no preconceived notions good or bad so i walked in and said hello sir and i shook his hand like he was like this man was like shocked whoa (laughs) this guy is really forward but not in a mean way just you know in a very open friendly way and the first thing he said to me, he says, he said, you know, you're, you're kind of big for this part. I said, oh, but sir, I promise you, I won't grow anymore. And he laughed. I mean, right? how, could, how can you stop growing, right? After a few more questions, he said, would you like to do a screen test? I said, sure. I figured everybody got to do a screen test. Well, that's not true either. But I didn't know that. So still having no idea what this was about. Zero. And that's when it was set up, and I went to, to the screen test, and that's when I was introduced to Adam West, and I was given a single sheet of paper. And on that piece of paper, had nothing about the name of any show. It just had paragraphs, a couple of paragraphs of dialogue. And the characters were Bruce and Dick. Not Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson, just Bruce and Dick. So what can you derive from that? So, would you have known if it was Bruce Wayne uh, and, and Dick Grayson? Would you have said, no, oh, that's Batman. No. I, I know Batman. No, no, because Batman, where I grew up in Beverly Hills, California, there were no Batman comic books. There were Superman comic books, Superboy, not Batman. And, and so I wouldn't have known. But in any event, I for sure didn't know because I had no idea what it was. 
So I and they wanted somebody who was athletic. I was a brown belt in karate at the time. So I did some falls and stuff. And my screen test is actually on the internet. You can see it. What are you gonna do now? Well, I'm gonna do a couple of throws and a couple of falls. Falls. You're gonna take the falls yourself? Right, I'm gonna throw the I'll do the falls first and then I'm gonna take the throws. Alright, let's see a couple of falls. And then I did my dialogue, and I said, well, thank you very much. And they said, wait a minute, you're not leaving yet. I said, oh, there's something more? Yes, we want you to go over there on the other side of the soundstage. We have a trailer there, and there's going to be a couple of wardrobe men who are going to help you get dressed. And I kind of stopped for a second. I said, well, you know, uh, no disrespect, sir, but I'm perfectly capable of, dre of dressing myself. And no, no, you don't understand. You just go over there. You'll understand when you get there kind of thing. I walked all, all the way over. I'm telling you, sound stages are gigantic. I mean, it's like you can take a half an hour to walk the other side. I walk this all the way over there. I get there and I go in and there's this, it's a, a trailer. It looks like a little uh, motor home. Uh, and it's got this long, kind of like a couch and a bed at the same time, but just, just gigantic kind of thing. And there's all this stuff on there. And I, and I met the two wardrobe men. I said, am I going to put some of this stuff on? They said, no, you're going to put all of it on. I said, what? So they got me into this outfit, the most uncomfortable thing in my entire life I had ever worn. I have never been so uncomfortable in my entire life. But I'm a kind of optimistic person that kind of tries to make the best of everything, you know. And I finally got in this thing and I could hardly move. I mean, just everything was horrible. The, the wool vest poked through the t-shirt and poking my chest. The tights pulling the hair on my legs. The mask touching my eye, eye, eyelashes and irritating my eye. I mean, there was a cape like 20 pounds of double thick bridal set pulling my head back like this i mean i was miserable but i tried to be optimistic so as i tried to get out the door because <laughs> you can't really see in front you have like total tunnel vision wearing that mask you know i turned to these two wardrobe guys and said look the good news here is after another 20 or 30 minutes i'll never have to put this costume on again <laughs> famous last word so then i go to the set and I'm dressed, and I like can hardly walk them. And the most uncomfortable thing in the world. And I see Adam there in this cape and cow. I had no idea. I didn't know that this was a superheroes. I thought maybe it's some kind of Shakespearean recreation. <laughs> I had no idea what it was. And that, and and so we did this dialogue. And I mean, I, and all of that, and and I left. And then there was a period of six weeks that I didn't really know if I'd gotten the, the show or not. But I got calls. After about a week and a half, I got a call from the studio. Oh, what is your shoe size? Oh, well, seven and a half. Okay. And I, well, does that mean anything? Oh, no. Thank you very much. Goodbye. And then I'd get called like, what's your hat size? Well, I never wore a hat in my life. So I, I don't know. They said, go get your hat head measured. Where do I go to get my head measured? You know <laughs> what I mean? I mean, the kind of real, real world questions here. So anyway... After six weeks, I got a call from these agents who said, Bert, we want you to come in and sign contracts. I said, great. I said, wow, they're going to really represent me formally. I'm not just the person that they call for an occasional interview, but I'm going to go sign my agency contracts. And I went there and uh, went into their office in Century City and they got me a chair and sit down and had these big, thick contracts. And I looked on the contract. It didn't have the name of the agency. It said 20th Century Fox. I said, well, what's this? He said, your contracts. I said, well, I thought I was signing agency contracts. Oh, no, no. These are the studio. You got the role. I said, I got the role? He said, you didn't know? No, I didn't know. <laughs> you mean the studio didn't tell you? No. 
And then when I finally got to the studio a few days later, they said, you mean those agents never told you you had the role? So apparently for the of the six weeks that I waited, the last four weeks I'd had the role, didn't know it. And I'm wondering, <laughs> you know, am I going to have to go out and try to get a job in a gas station? I'm going to support myself, you know? So that was that was that was how it, it all came about. Yeah. Wow. And then when I met the executive producer again, he he said to me, he said, Bert, you know, we interviewed more than eleven hundred young actors for this role, more than eleven hundred all across the country. It's a national search, uh, and we decided to choose you. Would you like to know why? I said yes, sir, because I was always brought up be very respectful of adults and stuff. I said yes, sir. I'd like to know. He said he says Bert. Because in our mind, forgetting television, forget television. What if there was really a Robin? I mean, like the real thing. We think that you personally, as you are, would be it. So we don't want you to quote act. No, 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 no. We want you to be yourself and be enthusiastic. Well, I'm naturally enthusiastic, <laughs> you know, right? I mean, it's like I don't have to do anything to be enthusiastic. And that's what I did for 120 episodes. And I never had one comment from one director, do this, do that. I mean, other than say, well, you know, when, when Batman says this, you come on through that door or something. That's stage direction. Nobody ever said how to do my lines or, or anything like that, you know. And, uh, and, and, and it was unique because I had to learn certain things about, you know, working on a, on, on a sound stage and stuff like that. One of the things was that, uh, as you know, most people go in and out of the door to get into their car. Well, sometimes I opened the Batmobile door to get in, but sometimes I jumped over the door. Well, believe it or not, that affected the camera people because they didn't allow enough room above my head to capture the whole thing. They said, wait a minute, Bert, you, you, you're going to do that. You've got to tell us before you do it. I said, why? Because we didn't get it in the kit. we got to shoot again. Okay, all right. And it was during the first episode, there's a scene outside a museum where Batman and Robin pull up. We suspect that Frank Gorshin with the Riddler was gonna was holding up this museum director. And we, we go outside this building, we pull up in the Batmobile, and instead of going out the door or even jumping over the door, I stood up and I'm just motivated by the moment, right? And, and the position of where the car was. I just stood up on the door and walked on the tail fin. It was very pointed tail fin all the way to the back and jumped off. Well, I said, cut, cut. <laughs> you, you, you didn't tell us you were going to go through, you know, we got to shoot this again. Right. And so there was this in the beginning where they realized that I was kind of unpredictable. You see what I'm saying? But it was natural and they loved it for that. Now, at the same time I shot that George Barris, who created the Batmobile, and two of his people who were there to keep it shiny and stuff like that, because nobody could touch it, only he could touch it. I didn't realize they're behind the camera having near heart attacks, that I'm going to ruin their paint job, <laughs> walking on this delicate, thin, uh, you, you see what I'm saying? So easy to have scraped off the paint with my shoes. You know what I mean? They're like, like dying back there. And they say, you almost ruined our paint job. Well, what do you mean? Don't you realize... You know how many, we have 10 coats of paint on here. We brush it, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. Gee, I'm sorry. I didn't know. Then I turn around and do it again. <laughs> you know, it's like, they say, oh, they've got, people got scared because they, I was unpredictable. You, you see what I mean? Yeah. They didn't yeah. know, what is he going to do? What, do you, you know, what, what is he going to do next on us? You know? And, uh, but 
overall, it worked out great. And working with Adam, Adam had an amazing style. Adam West, he actually could throw off other actors in trying to do scenes with him because he had a stop-and-go kind of way he did things. He could say, wait a minute, Robin, you know, I mean, and you know, like this, and you're like, you're all of a sudden you're shattered. And then he goes into this very slow thing and he walks up to the camera and his face fills the camera. And they say, wait, cut, Adam, you can't do that. This is a two shot. We want Bert, Bert, Robin, it's gotta be in the shot with Batman. We can't, can't have it. Oh, but I had to do it. What do you mean you had? To do it? Well, I was motivated to do it. Oh, get back in there, Adam. You stay on your marks. Don't you do that. You know, and then it would be lines like I would have a, a sh- I mean, he'd have this paragraph, right? Then I'd have a line like, you're right, Batman, right? I mean, just just three words, right? But oh, no, you have to understand Adam. He understood something about television that I didn't understand. He said he understood there was only going to be 20, about 22 minutes of television and eight minutes of commercials. And the slower he talked and the longer he held that camera on him, that mean everybody else had less camera on them. You see what I mean? Is that really what he was doing? Like he Absolutely. That? <laughs> All the time. So he would, he, here's what he would do. I would have this line like, you're right, Batman, right? And instead of allowing me to get the whole line out, I'd say, you're right, yes, Robin. He, in other words, he would cut off. i say, Adam, you're cutting off a lot. I had to do it. I'm sorry. Let's go. But inconspicuously, through the window. I had to do it. <laughs> And 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 they they would direct her when he could would kind of come to my aid say Adam not come on look you know this is in the script you know please you're you you know mess up the whole thing don't don't do that let let the guy get his line out right but see so he would cut in on my line and then proceed this very stoic kind of like you know what I mean very slow kind of thing well the slower he talked the faster I talked and what happened is. The way they wrote it is that Robin, the boy wonder, came up with, in the first episodes, came up with all the answers. And he came across looking kind of dumb, you know. And and they didn't want him to look dumb, but I was getting all the answers quickly while he's still pondering them. And he he raised hell about that. You can't make me look bad. I'm Batman. The show is called Batman. B-A-T-M-A-N. It's not called Robin. It's Batman. And I'm the star of the show. But he, he did it in such a fun way. Yeah. You know, it was not a mean. The man not didn't have a mean bone in his body. You understand? He was and such a funny man. He was just he was wonderful. And I we became like very, very close friends. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know you were you were the I didn't know they let you run so free. So what would happen if you put out a line and, and the censors would come back with the production say all right, don't blame us. You gotta, you gotta blame those two. Those two are out of control. Like, would you? Yeah, well, we would just say, "Gee, I never knew." I, gee, I didn't think it was. I'll give you an example. There was a, there was a scene where, in the third season, that we had Batgirl, uh, Yvonne Craig, that for whatever reason in the show that Batman and Robin decide, decided to invite Batgirl to come into the Batcave, but they didn't want her to know where it was. You know, in case she was ever captured or where it could reveal the secret location of the bat cave. So we gave her this bat gas and knock her out. And she, we drove her in and the Batmobile, And like I sat in my seat and Adam sat in the driver's seat. And she was kind of in the middle there where the bat turn emergency bat turn was anyway. So we had this dialogue, you know, and, and we, and on the way out, we had to give her this knockout gas again. And there was a very simple scene. 
where Batman is sitting in the Batmobile, I'm sitting in the passengers, and she's kind of already like knocked out in the in the center between us. And just as before we drive out, I had a line that was, gosh, Batman, you know, Batgirl is very pretty. And Batman had some line that was going to be like, hey, Robin, you know, I can see you're, you know, you're right, you know, and you're growing up or something like that. Some very inconsequential line, right? A throwaway line, just to start to get you out of the Batcave. Well, Adam messed up 13 takes. Now, Adam could make mistakes occasionally because he couldn't read the teleprompter properly. I memorized my lines because I have photo- near photographic memory. But he couldn't. So, so there, it could have been that for a couple of takes, but it, it had to be much more than that. There, there, you don't make up miss thirteen takes like that. And what he was doing, and I, 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 at first I didn't realize, but then I came to the point of realizing as I saw the frustration getting on the director's face, where getting redder and redder, and like we're we're going to be far behind. We're not going to, you know. He what he did is he pushed it to the end when he knew that whatever that fourteenth take was going to be, that was going to be it. There's not going to be anything after. They're too rushed to get onto some other thing, right? So he kept missing this, this simple line, you know. And I and I so and I figured, well, I'm, whatever. I'm going to keep doing my line. So here was the 14th tape, okay. And this ties in with slipping stuff in for the teenager and college kid. So uh, I have the line, "Gosh, Batman, you know, Batgirl is very pretty." He says, "I see that you, you you're bird. I mean, see Robin that you're uh, you know that that you're really growing up." And that uh, you're about to experience the oncoming thrust of manhood. Oh, my God. Thrust of manhood. And, like, tears were coming down my mask. And I, was trying to, I had to put my head down as though I was looking down because I didn't want the audience to see the tears of laughter coming out. The director didn't notice it. The script supervisor, they were all too panicked moving on. They said nothing. So when that show came out, man, the censors were in the next week. But it had already aired. The censors weren't catching it when they should have caught it, which would be to pre-screen stuff. But there's too many television shows on. How are you going to have enough censors to go around and watch every single show before it comes out? All they can do is really kind of look for ones where there are potentially more problems. And we became one that they kind of like focused on after a couple of weeks of this, right? And uh, but it was that kind of humor and the double meanings and the suggestiveness and all of that stuff. But but people loved it. Yeah. They laughed and they knew that we were doing this stuff. It's such a bold move. And, and it's really impressive that they I mean, the set that you had was huge. You know, oh, yeah, it was it was eight hundred thousand dollars set of the of the Batcave. Eight hundred thousand. This is in 1966. That'd probably be about four or five million dollar now just for a set. Just the background for which you had the bat cave, not counting the other sets, of course. And then you got the bat pole sliding down, which we had to do one time, sixty-five feet high. It was so scary. It was, it was really dangerous at the time. I had to go up these rickety steps, where these in, in a soundstage you have these wood steps that you can see through. You know, right? They're not solid. And as you're going up higher, you're looking down, you're seeing again. And they're and they're they're not real solid. You're going up and you're going up and you're going up and you're going. And it got to a point where they had these two poles. There was no net. We literally jumped out onto the. If they slipped, I've been dead. I'm not kidding you. And not only that, but they had warned us because of the friction of sliding down fast. 
to take the inside of our shoes, the, the rubber on the inside, and instead of wrapping our legs around it, to basically hold the pole with the insoles of our shoes. So as it was coming down, because it's not going to hold, you're going to slide down. But the friction would have just like burned, giving me second or third degree burns on my legs. I had done that. I mean, this was really dangerous. I mean, I had to literally jump onto that pole. There was there was no safety. There was no ropes. There not. It was a different time making television than it is today. Did Adam do that too? Because I always yes, heard the, he the, the he if did. it's true or not, the rumor is that you didn't have a stunt person and they made you do all your own stunts. Oh no, I had a stunt person. You know what the problem was? They never used him. Um, they, they did only use him on some of the fight scenes. You know why they never used him? Because he didn't look like me. <laughs> and this occurred in the very first day of filming, day one of my filming on Batman, outside Bronson Canyon in Hollywood, where they shot the famous Batmobile coming out of the Batcave. They said, Bert, you, you go into the Bat cave there. There's, you know, Batmobiles in there. You're going to get in the cave and, you know, you guys are going to drive out and come past the camera and, Headed off towards Gotham City. I said, okay, great. You know, first shot, first day, like 7 a.m. in makeup, in wardrobe. And uh, I, go, I go into this dark cave, and, and it's kind of hard to see when we first go into something that's dark. And I kind of find my way. I get into the Batmobile, and I look over, and I, I thought it was Adam. But you know how, without any sound, you could sometimes just sense that there's something different, you know? I said, Adam? He said, no, I'm, I'm Hubie. I said, oh. Well, why are you in Adam's costume? He says, because uh, I'm a stunt man. This is a very dangerous stunt. And the studio doesn't want to take a chance of Adam West getting hurt. I said, well, that makes sense. And I'm sitting there thinking, is this really dangerous? I say to him, yes, absolutely. We've got to come out at 55 miles an hour. We've got to make a sharp left turn. And, you know, and I said, well, what's it like being a stunt man? He says, it's great. He says, the more broken bones I get, the more money I get. And I'm contemplating that. And I'm hearing him say, okay, roll it up, get ready to shoot. I say, wait a minute, wait, whoa, wait a minute, there's a, there's a mistake here. And the second unit director comes up and says, Bert, what's the problem? I said, this man telling me he's a stuntman. Yeah, we know that. Yeah, but he's telling me it's a dangerous stunt. He said, yeah, he said, yes, we know that. I said, yeah, but, you know, where do I have a stuntman? Oh, yes, you do. I said, oh, great, well, where is he? Oh, I think he's having coffee with Adam West. Well, wait a minute. Why am I here if this is dangerous, that you're so dangerous you don't want to take a chance at Adam West getting hurt? Why isn't my stuntman here instead of me? Oh, we can't use him. We can't use him? No. Why? He doesn't look like you. He, why, why would you hire him to be my stuntman if he doesn't look like me? Couldn't find anybody else. Okay. All right. All, all, all right. You know. So you have to understand, no seatbelts. No door handle. What am I going to hold on to? This is very thin piece of plexiglass. Not, not even plain, just like plastic. Very thin, like a quarter of an inch. I'm going to have to hold on to that coming out at 55 miles an hour? Sure enough, come out at 55 miles an hour. I mean, this stuntman, they do the real thing. I mean, these guys, they don't mess around. That's the real thing. He comes out and barreling right at the camera makes that sharp left turn, and unexpectedly, something very bad happens. My door flies open. When it flies open, it knocks the cameraman off the little camera truck, knocks over one of those giant arc lamps. If that had fallen on somebody, they would have killed him. There's no question about that. 
I was thrown by the centrifugal force towards the opening in the door. And it's like, just, you know, reaction. My hand went behind me, and luckily, my little finger on my left hand wrapped around the gear shift knob. And it kept me from falling out, but it pulled it out of joint. It's incredibly painful. If you've ever had a, a, something dislocated, like, it is incredibly painful. So all, there was all this dust because it knocked the camera over, and, you know, he, he was bruised but not really hurt. Nobody got killed because of the arc lamp falling down he could have fallen on the batmobile we would have had to replace the batmobile i mean you're talking about thousands of pounds so uh they rushed over and they said burr you okay i said i mean you know I'm, I'm okay but my hand is killing me and through my glove you could see that my glove and my little finger had already doubled in size from the swelling and they said we got to get you to a hospital because you know it looks like you're gonna have to have that reset i said oh my god okay well well, well show me where, where's the car i go to Oh, we can't take you to the hospital now. <laughs> oh, we didn't get the shot, Bert. We got we got eighty guys on a crew. It's every fifteen minutes. It's thirty thousand dollars. Oh, oh, all right. We have to do that shot several more times. Now that was at seven in the morning, by the way. About seven thirty by the time accident happened. I left for noon for the hospital after having done this sh- several more times doing that shot. And that was the first of four days in a row that I was at the emergency hospital from injuries, second-degree burns, a two-by-four from an explosion landing on my nose, breaking my nose. I mean, it was a dangerous show. I didn't think I was going to survive the first week. But the studio, very smart, these guys. They took out, like a, I think it was at the time, a $3 million life insurance policy on me at the time, which is probably like $20 million now. And... I could swear by the end of the third season, they were trying to collect on that policy. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering, I was going to ask you, I hope when you look back on it, did they pay you enough for all this? But maybe since they were paying these high insurance premiums, maybe you didn't get yeah. paid as well. Well, I, I, used to t- I used to tell people that I got paid weekly, very weekly. <laughs> uh, my first uh, year, I was co-starring in a series, and for the first year, I got $350 a week to wow. co-star in that series. But then the second year, it did take a nice jump up to 450 a week. And then I made the big killing on the last year, $600 a week for half a season of, of, of stuff. It was not a lot of money. It was If you add it all together, it was less than $100,000 over three years to co-star you know, in the series. Um, Adam got like 10 times the amount. But still, by today's standards, it was peanuts. You know, We didn't get a lot of money for the show. But we had a great time, and it became an ultimate classic. What about appearances and things like that? Was that lucrative as well? Because you were Absolutely. at the height of pandemonium. I, I got to think there was a lot of opportunities to make more money. In, in yeah, we, we did. We, both Adam and I did very well going out, signing autographs. Um, and initially, we were paid. But over time, the industry turned where it became, instead of paying people to go there, they would get the lesser stars that didn't charge these big you know, daily fees. And let them sell their photos. And we ended up, I remember there was a show in, in, uh, at, that Adam and I did in uh, Detroit at Cobo Hall. We actually hold the arena record there, 182,000 paid attendance over the weekend. But we sold like um, 28,000 photographs at a dollar a piece. At a dollar a piece, in those days, okay. Today, my signature on a, on a photograph is $100. I mean, <laughs> I mean, can you imagine if it 28,000? At that time, I mean, at $100 each, that would have been a lot of money. 
but we had a, it was a great time. We had a lot of fun. We became, Adam and I were always great friends. And Batman is a classic. Yeah, I mean, you. If I think about everything pop culture, like classic pop culture, the top ten classic things, the icons that you think of, it's it's your Batman and Robin. That's yeah. got to feel amazing. It does. In fact, there's a new book out from uh, DC Comics, uh, which is owned by Warner Brothers. Uh, it's called uh, Robin. 80 Years of the Boy Wonder. It's one of these incredible 400-page coffee table books. And they asked me to write the introduction. And they, uh, you know, very nice. Uh, so I have the introductions, like, I think, three or four pages that I got to write for that book. And it was, it was, very, it was very nice. So, no, and I've done stuff. And certainly we've done Batman movies before Adam died. We did two feature-length animated features. that One of them was voted the best animated superhero feature of the year. And the last one was uh, Batman versus Two-Face, where the Adam West played Batman, did the voice. I did the voice of Robin. And Two-Face was voiced by William Shatner. I mean, my goodness, you know, here you have the two most iconic television shows in history, Batman and Star Trek, with the actors working together. It was, it was great. And Shatner was fabulous to work with. He's a very funny man, really nice man. And uh, I enjoyed very much working with him. And even today, I mean... I'm still doing stuff. Last December, uh, I guested on Supergirl, and I played Dick Grayson, character Dick Grayson, and and which is great because it was this, the scene that I had was just before the main titles, and everybody talked about it, and it was just written up. So it was great, you know. It warms people's hearts, you know, and uh, although some people, you know, in today's world, they say, oh, man, you're very well-preserved. Oh, well, like <laughs> Holy formaldehyde, Batman. I mean, or like, uh, you're an icon. You're an on-screen legend. You know, you're a relic. And what? No, no. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it's, it was uh, an amazing show, and it was a lot of fun. And it's going to be around probably for a very long time. I'm fortunate I got my star on Hollywood Boulevard uh, earlier this year on January 9th. They tried to do it right around the time that the date that the show was aired. That would have been January 12th, but the scheduling only permitted January 9th. And they have it where my star is very close to Adam West's star. And on Hollywood Boulevard, the way they're very smart the way they did at the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce. So if you're walking, say, from east to west or west to east, either way, every other one faces you and every, one, every other one faces people coming from the other direction. So you're always facing, you know, and getting to see every other one. Where you can easily read it, but they what they did is they positioned Adam and mine at about three feet apart, just about the distance that we would normally have our dialogue, and it's right in front of the Guinness uh, World Record Museum, you know, which is like super famous on Hollywood Boulevard. So we got great positioning, and it's been terrific, you know. It's a, I mean, it took fifty five years. I, I tell people I am a patient person, but fifty five years—that's a pretty long time to wait. Yeah. <laughs> With with the, how big the show became, how and, and a movie right away. So you said, did you say in six months you were already working on a movie? Oh, we, we found that within three four months we were on our first hiatus. And 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 but you know and and I, I will tell you something, a piece of trivia. There was another movie that I had time to shoot that a producer named Larry Terman from 20th Century Fox, same studio now. So it wasn't like a a different studio where they could want to keep you from working. You know, studios were very competitive. So this is the same studio. This is 20th Century Fox. 
man named Larry Turman, executive producer, he came to me and said, Bert, I'm doing a small movie here at Fox, and I've already checked during your hiatus. You've got time off. I'd like you to play the lead character in this movie. And I thought, oh, gee, that's great. I'd love to do that. And I thought, well, here it is, 20th Century Fox, the same studio, right? And you got the lead producer wanting you, coming to you to play this. And I said, absolutely. And it wasn't a question of money or anything. I, I wanted to do it, right? I thought it'd be a great opportunity. But Batman was so big, and it was such a huge hit, that ABC Network and 20th Century Fox didn't want to take a chance of diluting the imagery of me playing a different role. So they wouldn't let me do it. And I was so disappointed, even though it was a little film, right, that I couldn't do it. And I kind of like never forgot that. I mean, it didn't emotionally destroy me. But the movie, by the way, was called The Graduate. You might have heard of it. Oh, wow. So when they couldn't get me, they got a young guy named Dustin Hoffman to play that role. And then it was so funny because every few years later on, I would run into this executive producer, maybe at one of the restaurants in L.A. or something. He'd say, you know, Bert, I wanted you for the role. I'd, oh, please, Mary, don't tell me. I, I, I wanted to do it, too. Please don't say it again. You know, but but that just shows you that you can win some and you can lose some. But overall, I've had a fantastic career and, you know, I've been very fortunate, very, very fortunate. And, and as you know, my my wife and I are very much into charity. We. We spend our lives now, you know, we we rescue, we operate the largest giant free dog rescue in the world called Gentle Giants, and, and we save lives. It's kind of when people say, well, how, how can you go from being a, an actor to rescuing dogs? I said, well, it's, I like to think of it this way. I was the caped crusader, and now I am the canine crusader. That's cool. You know? And, uh, and, uh, and I said, really, it's not all that different. Instead of saving Gotham City citizens, we're saving innocent animal lives, and Throughout the last 26 years, it's become the charity that my wife and I have devoted our lives to. We don't take any salary from doing this. More than 15,500 dogs we've rescued in the last 26 years. Every one, by the way, has lived in our house with us. At all times, I have a minimum of 50 or more dogs living in my home with my wife and I. And uh, I mean, people say, oh, you mean 15? I said, no, no, I mean more than <laughs> 15, right? And they say, wow, how can you do that? I mean, you know, and, and actually it is an amazing environment. It's a nurturing environment. And because we love animals and because we've saved 15,500, actually, that's we're probably closer to 16 or 17,000. We, we stopped counting. But every one of these dogs would have been dead, killed in an animal shelter or something else because we didn't take them out on the last day before they were killed. So we, we consider that something very important to us. And we've developed, as I spoke to you earlier about, we've developed our, our special food that we have dogs now living up to 27 and a half years when no one in the entire world has ever been able to do anything like it. It's real. It's called Gentle Giants. It's our, it's our charity. We don't take any salary from this. And um, my, my wife and I developed this amazing food. And it's all across America. It's actually the number one selling product in Walmart in Canada. It's all across the U.S. and we're in Walmart and Target and a number of other stores and certainly online with all the major retailers, the Chewies, the Petco, the PetSmart, Tractor Supply. But the whole idea of this is that my wife and I, because we've been very fortunate to be successful, we now devote our lives to try to make a better world for all of us. And we love pets and, 
and 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 although we're experts with dogs, I mean, how many people do you think in your entire lifetime could have lived with more than fifteen thousand five hundred dogs in their home? I I don't think anybody else is crazy enough to have done what we've done. <laughs> but in any event, we, uh, we and although we're not that great at experts with cats, we probably only rescued three or four hundred cats, which still I'm sure ninety nine percent of our population has not rescued three or four hundred cats. But we've even got cats living into their early 30s, again, with a special food we make. And, and because, and I mentioned to you earlier, we don't take any salary from this and, and everything goes into the food and we want it to be affordable. There's so many people in our country that, you know, like a lot of elderly people that, you know, maybe their kids have grown up, moved on, they're, maybe they still have a spouse, maybe they don't. But that pet, that love of their life is all they have left and they want that animal to live as long as possible and as we all know dogs lives are very short in comparison to humans lives so for us to be able to have dogs living two and three times their normal lifespan it's not just a wonderful thing for the dog but to give somebody who loves their pet who who that's all they have left in life and give them an extra five or ten years with that pet that's like pretty spectacular so and, 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 and we have a website I'd like to mention, GentleGiantsDogFood.com. And we have a new store, GentleGiantsPetProducts.com. And, and everything we do, we do as a charity where we don't take any salary. And because we don't take salary from this, the cost of, of our products are much less than if you were to go to, say, a pet store to buy it. In fact, our Gentle Giants Dog Food retails for less than half the price of what you would pay in a pet store for a dog food similar to ours, but one that won't keep your dog living 27 years. So our motto became half the price and twice the life. And that's our charity. Yeah, so my wife and I, we're, uh, we rescue uh, schnauzers, and, and we are very aware of your reputation in, and, and your passion for the yeah. rescuing and all that stuff. So that's great. I'm glad you're talking about it. I hope a lot of people will check you out and, and see all the great work you're doing. Well, I'd like to mention one thing to show your viewers and you guys, if you'd like to know, how do we do it? I mean, this is not hocus pocus. This is the real thing. How do we have dogs when most people's dogs start to get – a problem getting up or walking when they're seven or eight years old and within a few years can't get up anymore and end up going to the bathroom on themselves. And that's when they're taken to a vet to be euthanized at 10 or 12 or 13, maybe at the latest. How is it that we can have dogs running around like puppies in their mid-20s? And here's the answer. The answer is that we make a food that doesn't shorten the lives of dogs. And, and you say, well, why would, it, why would food shorten their lives? Well, here's an example. Go if you if you're a dog owner. Uh, next time you feed your dog, or, or now go over to your bag of dog food, pick up some of the kibbles in your fingers, rub those kibbles together, and then put the kibbles down and rub your fingers together and see if you don't feel that very slight greasy feeling. It's there. It's there on everybody else's food. It's not on our food. And you say, well, well, what is that? Well, that's animal fat that was sprayed onto the food to make dogs hungrier to eat more dog food. And the more dog food that a dog eats, the sooner the pet parent has to buy another bag. Okay, it's, uh, it, 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 it's about money uh, in many cases. Now, in our case, and you say, well, but how could that be such a big difference? I said, well, let me give you an example. Uh, as a, a human being living in your house, would you ever take a, a can of bacon grease and pour it down your garbage disposal 
at home? And people say, of course not. I said, well, why wouldn't you do that? Well, because unlike water that evaporates, animal fat, it congeals. And, you know, it, it coagulates. It would harden. And, it, and if I poured a whole can of bacon fat or turkey mm-hmm. fat or chicken fat down my garbage disposal, once it hardened, I mean, forget it. I've got to call a plumber and get a new garbage disposal. I said, that's right. So when you realize that animal fat will ruin a metal garbage disposal, what do you think is happening to the arteries and intestines of those dogs you love when every single meal, every single kibble, every single bite is encapsulated in animal fat? People go, oh my God, I never thought of that. And I, and they say, but how do you, how are you, that your dog's, are still running around like puppies and and in their mid-20s. I said, well, what happens if you had a drought in your city? What would your city do? Wouldn't they start to ration water? Wouldn't they find a way to conserve whatever it was that they were running out of? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, think of it this way. Your dog's body only has so much energy in life. There's only so much, okay? And on Batman, I use a wonderful example of the hourglass we had in just about every Batman show. You know, the hourglass, you turn it upside down and the sands of time are running out. Well, think of your dog's life energy, that ability to get up, to walk, to run, to play, just to exist as the sand coming out of that hourglass. When it finally comes out, it's over. And it's over for our dogs as well as your dogs. But what is the difference? We found a way to conserve and slow down that energy coming out of the dog. Well, how can you slow down the energy coming out of the dog? I'll give you a quick example. When you feed your dog, okay, you put the food in bowls that are on the floor, water and food, or you do elevate them. Some people say, well, I elevate them. I said, well, what height? Oh, well, I bought this little thing and elevates it. I said, you know that there's a specific height for every dog? Well, why would that be? Well, think of it this way. When your dog comes over to eat or drink, what do they do? They lean down to get the food or water, and they come up. And then they lean down to get maybe the food. And then they lean up and down to get the water. And then they drink up and down and up and down all day long, every day. And all that energy is being used up. Whereas if you elevate it so the dog never has to lean down, just comes over and tilts their head down. Why do we have tables? Why do we sit at at a certain height from our food to make it easier on our digestion? People say, well, gee, I never thought of it that way. Guess what? That's real. That's one of the ways we do it. Another way I say to people, how many times a day do you feed your dog? Almost everybody says the same thing, which is once or twice a day. Most people say twice a day. Some people say once a day. I said, you realize only feeding your dog once or twice a day shortens your dog's life, cuts their lifespan in half? Oh, no. Why would it do that? I said, well, let me ask you a question that you can relate to. If, as a human, you went to your doctor for an annual exam and you ask your doctor the following question. Doctor, am I better off eating one or two big meals a day or four or five smaller meals a day? What do you think your doctor would say? Well, everybody, I know the doctor would say four or five smaller meals. I said, you realize your dog is not designed near as well as a human being? Do you realize it's much more important for your dog to eat smaller, more frequent meals than even for you? No, I didn't really think of that. Well, there's your answer. So these are just two things I've given you 
that are dramatic in their result. And one more thing, when we designed our food, you have to understand the companies that sell dog food, they're in a business to make money and there's nothing wrong with making money. But the question is, when you make more money and it actually harms the dog, isn't that really going too far? Well, we designed our food not for the dog to eat more, but for the exact opposite, for the dog to eat less, more nutrition. It's not how much food a dog eats that counts. It's how much the dog's body absorbs what it eats. A typical dog food company would love it for their the dog eating their food. Eat, eat, eat 100% and 100% that came in the front end to come out the back end. So they would still be hungry and have to keep eating and eating and eating to get nutrition. We use things like chelated minerals, which are minerals that help the dog absorb much more of the food. So they end up eating, in our case, dogs eating our food eat about a third less of our food than other dog foods. That means they have a third less on their stomach, a third less stool, and a third less digestion. And I love to use the example, I say to people, have you ever gone out maybe to a buffet or really great food on a holiday and you're eating too much and you come home and you literally have to lie down to digest your food? Has that ever happened in your lifetime? Well, you know everybody has had that happen, right? I said, what, what really is happening there? Have you ever thought about it? Your body is basically saying, hey, we're shutting down everything else till we get this food digested because it takes such a massive digestive effort to digest that food. Well, suppose you ate a food that you digested a lot less. You're conserving energy. And suppose you ate it over four or five meals where instead of all of that one time using that massive digestive effort, it was a very minimal effort because it was only a little bit at a time. These are the things that we do with dogs that collectively day after day, meal after meal add up and that that translates to longer healthier lives, less illness, more nutrition, no clogged arteries, okay? We all know, if you remember as a kid, we we all learned from school that every time we wash our hands, even though we may not see it technically, we're washing off skin, the dead skin that comes off. We don't feel it, okay? We wash our hands, it comes off, but our bodies are replacing their cells, right? And think about it this way, When you're a little child growing up, your cells are actually replacing themselves faster than they're dying. As an adult, we reach a leveling point. And as people get much older, their cells don't replace as fast, do they? And therefore you age. So what do you think happens when you clog a dog's arteries and intestines with fat and you slow down the distribution of nutrients throughout the body? You inversely increase the aging process. These are all the things that we think about every single day. Every dog in our home, 50 plus dogs, is in our same feeding and care program, which your viewers can read on our website. It's free information, gentlegiantsdogfood.com, menu at the top of every page. The selected page is special feeding and care program. So with all of this together, it contributes to people having dogs that can live. I just got an email two weeks ago from a man with a German Shepherd. I don't know the man. He, he didn't, you know, I never talked to him. He just wrote to me. He said, Mr. Ward, you don't know me. I want to thank you very much. I, I did just lose my German Shepherd, but he's been on his, your food for 15 years and he died at 23 years of age. Wow. 23 years of age. That's his dog. 
Okay, and he may not have been doing everything that we were saying about the five or more times a day feeding and all of these. I mean, we have refined this and we're totally dedicated to it. But that shows you. So you don't have to lose that precious pet. If you want that pet to be with you an extra five or 10 or maybe even 15 years longer, we've carved a path through the forest. You know, just follow what we've done and you get the same results. Yeah, it makes total sense. It's when you're pragmatic about it. I mean, it just makes total sense. Everything sounds like it makes sense to me. It doesn't sound like a conspiracy. It works. It works. We're living with it every single day. In fact, hold on. I, I'm going to show you something real quick. One second. Okay. I want you to meet Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell, well, she was napping, so Daddy just woke her up. <laughs> Tinkerbell is going, if she's 24, going on 25. Okay. Now she's a small dog. But her, nevertheless, her normal lifespan is only 12 to 14 years, not 25 years. That's amazing. Okay. See, look That's at great. her. See? See? And, and I have other dogs in this room that, in, in fact, I think the last time Tracy and I calculated, I think 65% of the more than 50 dogs we have here now have already lived more than twice their normal lifespan. That's consistency. That's not an anomaly. That's consistency. If you give the, the food to a senior dog, is that too late? Or? No, no, it works more dramatically. That, that's where you get the, the most dramatic results. Okay. And, and I've had people that tell me after a week they've seen changes, but we tell people it, a, a month. And I'll tell you why it's about three weeks to a month. Remember, all of that fat on every single kibble that they've been chewing and swallowing, it, the good news is it will work itself out of a dog's body. If it didn't, then. We, you know, we wouldn't be successful, but it does naturally work itself out. The difference between us and every other dog food company is their food puts it right back in their body. We don't put it back in. Our food, if you feel it, is bone dry. It's so dry, if you took a couple of kibbles and you rub, rub them together, you could make a powder of the food. That's how dry it is, okay? And these dogs that eat our food, they feel better. They, they are better. They, they live better. They, they don't have illness. I mean, it's a 24 and a half year old dog. It's a real thing. Yeah. And by the way, we have all the vet records of all of the dogs. Because we are a rescue, we are required to keep records. We have medical record of every single dog, the age, you know, condition of the dog, when it was last examined, the shot records. We have all of that stuff. So sure. we have all Ev- our backup. Evidence, yep, backup. Evidence that you're absolutely telling the truth. That's fantastic. That's great. This is wonderful. You know, so we encourage your viewers and you guys take advantage of what my wife and I I mean, and, and one thing else, I, I mentioned to you on our website, we have that special feeding and care program. And I tell people, I said, you know, what you're going to read, it took my wife and I 25 years of our life to learn what you can read and learn in less than 25 minutes. You talk about productivity. Here you go. You know, that's great. That's awesome. I'm going to put Tinkerbell back. Okay. Um, to sleep. He probably wants to go back to sleep. <laughs> sure. Well, you know, the thing is, is that we, it warms our heart. Um, and because it, it, for us, believe it or not, I know, you know, it, it may be hard to believe, but we actually get more pleasure of doing things for others than for ourselves. We, it's like, I tell people, how many hamburgers a day can you eat? You know, I mean, you know, I mean, we're, we're just, uh, you know, we, we're very happy. We have a wonderful life. My wife and I love her very much. We've been married 31 years. And, 
you know, I tell everybody, by the way, the first hundred years are the hardest. After that is pretty smooth sailing. But but we're we're very happy, and we have so much fun doing things together. So we look on upon life as how do we make a better world for all of us? You know, because we're all here really such a short period of time. You know, somebody told me one time, live each day as though we're your last, and someday you'll be right. You know. <laughs> So uh, we, we try to make the best of life, and we like we have such a wonderful relationship with our customers, too. We, people can call us, and they do. We get about 1,100 phone calls a week from people who have questions. Well, how much do I do this, or how much do I feed that, or can I do this? And then plus the Facebook questions. Our Facebook site is General Giants Dog Food and Products, and my wife handles that and answers questions that are just – it's like thousands of questions she answers you know, as best as you can. But we, we get around, we get everybody an answer. Well, Bert, we appreciate everything that you're doing for the uh, the animals. We're Bill and I are both big animal lovers. And uh, yeah, we're definitely going to try your product. Not personally, right. not personally, but. <laughs> well, it's so funny you should say that because at an Academy Awards pre-party a few years ago, uh, we had set up a, a display because we were giving away samples for the some of the um, Oscar nominees and stuff like that. And we actually had Academy Award winners that were eating our dog food because they saw the results. I'll name one, Margaret O'Brien, Academy Award winner. Uh, Margaret O'Brien, very famous actress. She had there and uh, uh, we had uh, other people, uh, you know, other celebrities that were, they were actually tasting the dog food. And, And the thing is, is that it is the same food that we eat. I mean, we use, for example, chicken, Tyson chicken, the same chicken, Tyson is number one. A manufacturer of chicken in the U.S. And we don't use a, a lesser quality. We don't use any byproducts. I mean, everything, we have no preservatives, no chemicals. And as everything we have is what we describe as pure nutrition. Before we uh, wrap up, we got quite a few fan questions here for you. Sure. Whatever. Fire away. All right. So we'll get right into it. Kyle Patton would like to know, did you really challenge Bruce Lee to a fight during the Batman Green Hornet crossover? Isn't that interesting? By the way, crossover, look how crossover become very famous recently. And we were the very first ones to do it. If you think about that, it's just five years ago. Okay. Bruce Lee and I lived in the same complex of condominiums. We were personal friends and we used to spar together. I mean, really hard not like what we had on batman in fact we were also friends that i i remember um that bruce and i and his wife linda and brandon at the time his son who was six months old at the time we went down to chinatown one night and had dinner and because bruce had lived in hong kong for 10 years he knew all the most authentic foods and stuff but we were friends and we did spar real hard sparring and and, and he was phenomenal. He trained eight hours a day, every single day. It could have been Christmas Day. He would have trained eight hours a day. He was an amazing martial artist. So uh, on Batman, they, you know, our style on Batman was not really to ever look like you're hurting somebody. I mean, you could see these villains would pick up a chair and get it over Batman's head, and he might fall down, but two seconds later, he's up. I mean, there was never any blood. There was never any real, uh, real violence in that respect. It was kind of... Bigger than life, superhero stuff. So uh, this the fight scene, which, by the way, a piece of info, trivia for you. You know, as you know, of course, Bruce Lee became by far the most famous cinematic martial artist in history, and probably never be duplicated. The, you know, he was so great, and he just did such a great job, and everybody loved Bruce Lee. Well, piece of trivia for you: his very first 
fight scene of his career on film was fighting me on Batman. Okay, and that was because we had the same executive producer, William Dozier, who produced the Green Hornet. And of course, Bruce played the role of Cato. Dan Williams played the, the role of the Green Hornet. And because that show was coming out in the fall of 67, uh, they thought uh, they would, you know, he could introduce it on our show because here we are, number one in the world. What a great way to introduce the Green Hornet for its debut the next fall. So that's why we had that crossover thing. But we were friends and they were very clear about this can't look too real. Everything has to be big and broad and equal. They didn't want either side looking like it was unequal. Wow. Thinking about the villains for a moment, you had some big stars on there. I mean, yeah. they must have gotten the show from the get-go and said, you know, this this is something I want to do. This is fun, and, and I'm, I'm willing to put aside all my uh, esteem and everything. Like Burgess Meredith, like it seems crazy oh, yeah. that he did this role. Oh, so uh, Frank Sinatra wanted to play the Joker, but Cesar Romero had already been cast. Every star in Hollywood wanted to be on our show. Something happens. If you have something that's successful, everybody gravitates to that. And there was, there was actually a tremendous demand to be on our show. And remember, there's only like one villain every week. And I think the last season they tried to have two villains kind of join up together. You know what I mean? But uh, so because the demand was so great that they created that special scene of Batman and Robin walking up the wall where, you know, a window would open and the very first one, Sammy Davis Jr. Okay. Jerry Lewis, uh, uh, Don Ho, Betty White, Lurch, Colonel Clink, uh, Dick Clark. I mean, there was just endless number of celebrities that, and their families were crazy when they were on the show. I mean, everybody, there's such a demand to be on our show. It was like, it was so crazy hot. And Adam and I made some appearances, uh, when we did our, our our Batman movie, we had 36 theaters in three days that we went to in New York. And it, it was just, I mean, I've never seen where a sea of people, there was probably 50,000 or more people just in one gigantic, more than a parking lot. It was like several blocks of, of pavement that just people were, it, it, it was just amazing. You couldn't believe there could be that many people that would show up for our show. And uh, it was a super hit. It really was. And people loved it. And, and people today that are adults remember when they were children growing up watching Batman and their kids watching reruns now. It's, uh, it's in every state in the U.S. And I think it's still in some 40 countries. Wow. Did I hear you say earlier that it was on two times a week? Yes. Yeah, so initially, we were on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and it went to Wednesdays and Thursdays. And the last season, we were on once a week. We did 120 episodes, and it took a week to make each episode. Just think of that, 120 weeks of your life in a costume, 14 hours a day, five days a week to make one episode, 120 of them. Wow. I have one last question that, that just uh, popped into my head. I'm sorry the listeners get, you know, might get mad at me. I'm taking away time from, from them. But what I don't understand is how the show exploded as big as it did. I mean, in the eighties, there was a resurgence and that's, you know, my generation, it was everywhere in the eighties. So the show has always been loved. How did it get so big and stop after only three seasons? I'll tell you several reasons. One reason is 
Now, remember, this is 1966, 67, and 68. This is a long time ago. This is 50 years ago. The show was losing about $300,000 a week, which is like a show losing about $3 million a week right now. Why was it losing money? Because it was just too many effects and too much this and and, and a crew that was three times the normal size to make everything work. It was just really expensive, okay? That's one reason. Second reason is that there was uh, a person who was uh, like a unit production manager, uh, you know, a numbers guy, not a, not a creative guy, that said to the producers in the third season, if you'll let me direct the shows, I'll make sure everyone comes in on budget. And he did. He did. But the show suffered. It wasn't as creative. It wasn't as much fun. And it suffered that way. And then the third reason was because so much, so many millions of dollars now, okay, were in a negative loss, that by the time they got 120 episodes, that was enough for this show to run in reruns in perpetuity. <clears throat> in perpetuity and, and running in reruns, they certainly don't get anywhere near the money as a first run, but then they have no cost because they've already made the show. And that's how they recouped and Batman became finally, after, I don't know, 20 years, it actually became profitable, where it wasn't profitable for 20 years because it took that long to recoup the investment and the interest and all that kind of stuff, where it became a profit. So it was a business decision. You know, people need to realize it's called show business. It's not just show, it's show business. So, you know, they made a they made a business decision. But look what Batman has done. Look, I mean, you think about it, we really had a huge... A reaction in terms of what production is today. Look at all the superhero movies that are out that were generated because of us, Batman and Robin, and the interest in superheroes. And something else, a piece of uh, of, uh, of trivia. You, you know how, like in these, in almost all the movies you see today, superhero movies, or even movies like Bad Boys, or where you have a relationship of two guys, you know, and then they're doing something very dangerous and all that kind of stuff. Well, right at the moment of, of great danger, they'll stop and have some little dialogue between each other. It's kind of like comic relief. And then they go on to the scene. We created that. We actually created that. It was yeah. written. In I'll give you an example. We had a scene where we're in a warehouse and we're looking for the Joker. And all of a sudden, from nowhere, eight of these giant henchmen show up. Okay. And I had a great line to Batman and said, Batman. There's eight of them against two of us. Odds in our favor. You know, I mean, only eight of them, right? <laughs> against two of us, as opposed to like 20 of them. So, you know, but it was that kind of dialogue that we had at the time that really became popular in modern times. And they use it in all the movies. Every popular movie has a moment of comic relief right near the moment of the greatest tension. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, although you said it only lasted 120 episodes in three years, I mean, it'll it'll be around forever. Yeah, I think so, because there's always going to be. And it's so funny because television shows, when they're sold in reruns, are usually sold for a season. Or maybe if it's a really popular show for a year, Batman was sold in blocks into reruns a minimum of 25 years per sale. Wow. That's valuable. It was considered as a property. For reruns 25 wow. years you know anybody that bought it they bought it for 25 years all right well let's get back into the fan questions 
Uh, Lupe Velasquez wants to know, do you have an actual Batmobile in your garage, one of the five originals or a replica? I almost had one. I almost had one. I was actually having one built because of making appearances and stuff. And But I lived on the road a long time making appearances. Actually, before my wife and I got married, I mean, I've been doing appearances since the show first came out. But I was doing it for a period of 25 years. I was doing 300 cities a year for 25 years, living literally out of a suitcase. So I decided that I wasn't going to make those appearances physically traveling all the time. I wanted to be able to have a family and live some kind of a, as close to normal life as we could. But then I decided I would do appearances virtually as, as I'm now doing where now with the technology, I can, I can do an appearance in uh, the UK or Australia or Japan where it's setting up, they use this little Facebook portal type thing where I on an 85 inch television. It's, not only is it just like being there, but they have machines now with the whole Sharpie pens, the same pen that I sign. I can sign my name to, you know, to Bill or John or Mary or whatever with a special message. And on the other end, it prints it out with my signature in wet ink. Okay. Oh, wow. Talk about pretty sophisticated. In addition, when I did all the personal appearances and I was signing autographs and the met people, yes, they got to shake hands. That's true. Okay. But when they left, they had left with a photo. Now, because of the technology, they not only leave with a photo, but they can leave with the video of us meeting and talking, which is a verification that, you know, that picture and everything is real. But it's also something they can put on their Facebook page or share with their family or, or whatever and keep as a permanent thing, a video of us having talked together. And some people say funny things and I have funny answers and it's, I always try to make the best of it. You know what I mean? Where everybody comes away with something like, gosh, you know, that was special. All right. So Steve says the pop song, boy wonder. I love you recorded by yourself where Robin reads fan mail from his adoring fans. Plus the B side featuring you singing orange colored sky, a classic that needs to be updated or placed gently back into the history books. <laughs> well, it depends on which one. In the case of Boy Wonder, I Love You, MGM Records came to me, you know? And if you think about it, you know, in the famous Dirty Harry movies, Clint Eastwood has a line, a man has to learn his limitations. You know what I mean? Kind of thing. Well, I don't sing, all right? And my wife's a fabulous singer, but I do not sing. And I tried to tell this to MGM Records, oh, Bert, you don't stand. We're going to give you all this money. you got to do this for your fan. you got to do this, right? So I agreed, and I and I had this contract with MGM, and they introduced me to this wild guy named Frank Zappa. Now, Frank Zappa was a brilliant, brilliant musician, Columbia University graduate. But if you looked at him, okay, with his long black hair and very unconventional thing, you know, and then he had this band with him, uh, the Mothers of Invention, that these guys, I mean, they're exactly the opposite of what you would imagine Robin to be, right? I mean, these guys would come out and they would play their set and then they would destroy things. They would destroy couches and chairs. They would break their instruments. I don't know how they could afford it. They destroy everything. That was their shtick, so to speak. And I was introduced to, you know, Frank Zappa. 
and there were, he was going to do this. And so uh, I said, look, I can't sing. Well, you've got it. We have to put out this one side and we'll make it really funny by making it really so bad that it's, you know, that, you know, will accentuate your inability to sing, which they did. And that's the orange colored sky. And I have some funny stories to tell about that. But coming back to the first one, I did actually take a series of fan letters and the real, everyone was real, put them together because not one would have made it all together. And it became the song, Boy Wonder I Love You, became number seven on WLS radio in Chicago until it was pulled for censorship. Because at the time, you couldn't have, like, there was here, because it said, you know, this, you know, I, uh, I, I, can you come over to my house? It's this young girl, you know, writing a fan letter, you know, uh, can you, you know, can you sleep over for a week or two? I'll make you breakfast in bed. And I, in fact, I love you so much. I'd like you to stay the whole summer. I mean, you know, innocent love, not anything to do with sex at all. But the censors were so harsh at that period of time. It was pulled off the air when it was number six. It could have gone higher. Then on the other hand, the song that I sang, well, I mean, believe me, I'm not a singer. So, you know, a lot of that is my fault, but they really, they really goosed it up to me. <laughs> Just absolutely horrendous. And it became this hit that people like, uh, what was it, Dr. Whatever, I don't know, Dr. Drew, not Dr. Dryers. Dr. I don't know who it is. Some kooky kind of uh, a guy plays it on the weekends. And, it, and in fact, my own daughter played a little trick of me. I have an older daughter. I would have business people come over to our house. And we had a, I had a beautiful beach house in Malibu. And I'd have a business meeting. In fact, I'll tell you, it was one of the business meetings because I ultimately became, uh, I had operated fan clubs and I did merchandising at rock concerts. And there was a very famous group called ABBA, I'm sure you've heard of. And their manager, Stig Anderson, came to our house and I for three years I did everything for ABBA in the United States everything and they were number one selling group in the entire world so he was over discussing business uh, with with doing ABBA and my at the, at the time I think my 11 or 12 year old daughter put this orange colored sky on and we're playing this music while I'm trying to have this business meeting and and here's the manager of ABBA the biggest group in the world what is that what is that that sound what is it? You know, I said, oh, I don't know. Just my daughter playing some crazy kind of game show or something. No, I don't think it's a game show. It sounds like a song. You know what I mean? And I'm trying to cover it up and say, oh, well, let's don't worry about that. Let's not look at this. Let's get back to our business. But it was such a funny thing. And my daughter, of course, be giggling. And she thought it was the funniest thing in the world as kind of a, you know, kind of a trick to play on her dad. And, you know, I love her so very much. Of course, I wasn't mad at her, but I would have preferred she'd not do it when the number one manager of the number one group in the entire world is sitting in my living room, you know? So what did Frank, did, was Frank Zappa, did he record with you? Is that- uh, he, well, he, he was, he, he was the, he wasn't the producer. He's the one that arranged everything and he got the group behind. He directed every, he was like the director, if you will. Uh, there was a guy named Tom Wilson, the actual producer. Um, but, uh, and, 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 it, everything was done intentionally the way it was done. And he, he was honestly became very successful. And Frank was incredibly, incredibly impressive. This is a man that really, he was, he was brilliant, just way beyond his time. Brilliant. So um, I was actually very fortunate and it, and it was a fun thing, but to have our, when I had our picture taken with him and the group, it was just like, you know, it just, 
it was just such a contrast that it was like, you know, oh my gosh. And and people would laugh and they'd say, oh my God, I can't believe that photo. These guys with shaggy hair. And it, I mean, and, and I'm sure they were clean, but they made it look unclean and just like, just, oh, it was just, and, and here I'm all American apple pie. And uh, it was it, that huge contrast. But it, actually, if you think about it, in history, the greatest comic duos have always had great contrast, right? Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, Ed McMahon and Johnny Carson, all the, all, always great contrast, okay? So, um, and Adam and I, you know, great contrast, you know, he's very slow and deliberate and, you know, he kind of thinks of himself like uh, Winston Churchill. You know, he's just got these grand, bigger than life, you know. <clears throat> In fact, I'll tell you a funny story one time, Adam said to me, he said, you know, Bert, you can just see it's coming on here with one of the things. He said, I really got an insight to what it was like to play Batman. I mean, I really understand it for its full real world, you know, the what it really takes inside to play Batman, what it really means to the world. I said, oh, okay, Adam, well, what, you know, he says, I watched Charlton Heston on the Ten Commandments, having just received the word of God. You know, or, or whatever <laughs> Moses from the Sermon on the Mount, whatever it was, you know, and, and, you know, Moses parted the Red Sea and Adam only parted other things. But the point of it was, is that, 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 that he thought of himself in such a grand, bigger than life. He used to tell me, that, you know, there's a really only, there's three B's in the history of the world. Three B's. What are the three B's? Beatles, Bond, and Batman. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, so he thought in these grand terms. Right. And he's the guy that wanted his tea at four in the afternoon. And I'm like this kid that never grew up. So there was such contrast. But and the, and the slower he would talk, the faster I would talk and the slower he would move, the faster I would move. And it, and it, it just and everything was natural. Nobody ever said, oh, Bert, don't do it like this or don't do it or do more of that or to him. Either one. They let us be, and this natural chemistry we had just worked amazing. Now, this was the time of uh, the drug culture. Was did drugs play any role into the uh, the creativity of the show? No, no. And in fact, Adam and I. Well, I mean, I I always was very straight. I mean, I was very much like my character. I mean, I think that's why they hired me. I never drank in my entire life. I never smoked. I never took drugs. And to be in this business. Where, you know, there's a lot of people that fall by the wayside because they get involved, the pressures and stuff. But I never did it. And, you know, I'll tell you something. I really learned a lesson years after I did the series. When I would be making appearances and some of the people from other sh uh, other shows that were very popular would be at the same appearance. And I felt sad because I looked at them and I said, my gosh, they, they look so much older, you know. I mean, we all get old, but... But it just, you know, and, and I always felt, and they, people say to me, God, what is it you're taking? Are you drinking formaldehyde? I mean, you're like so well-preserved. I said, well, I'm not sure I like the way that sounds. But, but you know, if you really do live a clean life, it, it pays off, you know? And you don't have to not have fun. You can have fun, but you, you don't have to bring yourself down. You don't have to do things that, that harm your body because our bodies are frail enough to begin with, right? All right. So let's see. Joe Euskis wants to know 
Who or what was your favorite villain from the show? Uh, that is really a question I get asked all the time. And understand, as a 21-year-old kid on Batman, having watched these superstars, either in film or on television, every week a different one, I, I was like the kid in the candy store. I mean, all that candy was great. I mean, everyone was special, and everyone had something that I admired. I know that there were there were some that I recognized because I'd seen more of, you know what I mean, on television and stuff. But uh, I was thrilled. I mean, I worked with uh, so many stars. I mean, of course, the, the main ones that you they did so many episodes with, you know, Cesar Romero is the Joker. Frank Gorshin is the Riddler. Uh, Julie Newmar is Catwoman. And Burgess Meredith is the Penguin. But we had other stars like Joan Collins was the Siren, you know. And we had, uh, look at all the great actors. Victor Buono was King Tut. Cliff Robertson was Shane instead of Shane, S-H-A-N-E. It was S-H-A-N-E, you know. And uh, just think of all these superstars that were on our show, you know, that uh, were, wow, it was, it was cool. So for me, I had a great time doing it. And I, I can't even describe what a thrill it was. I, I was as much a fan of them as they were a fan of, of being on our show because they, they knew their family would benefit from it. It wasn't about yeah. money. It's like people that are really, that want to do something that's really creative because they know the, their peers and their friends and their family will all get a kick out of it, you know? Mm -hmm. Did you ever have a guest on the show who just didn't get it? I, I don't think so. I don't, I mean, there were some, we had some like Maurice Evans, a great Shakespearean actor who, didn't 100% get into the bigness of the character because they were so used to, I guess, doing, you know, such great Shakespearean stuff. But but most of the people saw Batman as an opportunity to do acting that they couldn't do anywhere else, where they could be bigger than life. They could be badder than anything. They could be, you know, just super villain. And like we were superheroes, you know? All right. So uh, let's see. Our friends over at A Grave for Crows podcast, they say, Burt Ward Boy Wonder was going to be a four-part issue miniseries, but has not yet been published in full. How do you feel about the fact that 50-plus years uh, after being on the show and you're still influencing the genre? Oh, well, that's it's a great compliment. You know, they, there's also, I, I didn't mention that a number of years ago, Warner Brothers came out with a whole Batman 66 line of merchandise. They have a whole Batman 66 comic books where Robin's hairstyle matches mine and stuff like that. And, of course, I mentioned the new this new DC book that just came out actually last month, uh, Robin, 80 Years of the Boy Wonder. I actually, I was in talks to even do a movie based on my book, Boy Wonder, My Life in Tights. And and I must tell you, Adam and I really wanted to do, recreate Batman and Robin later on, even as seniors. I mean, we saw great humor. I mean, just imagine, you know, Gotham City after all these years, and now it's everything is stable, and all of a sudden it becomes unstable, and they can't solve it, and they turn to somebody in the past, and they contact Bruce Wayne, who's older, and he agrees to help, and he goes to his closet to get his his bat costume, you know, and the dust billows out, and Robin can't pull his tights up because they don't fit anymore. And I mean, you could have the most hilarious thing of Batman and Robin recreated 
older. And, and, and if you look at what happened with Star Trek, Star Trek was done differently. You know, William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, after the series, they had Star Trek movies where they used these the same actors. And who cared if they were older? They were more endeared. The, the fans were endeared to them, the fact that they were older. You know, you, see, you love them even more. But they didn't see that. Warner Brothers didn't see that with Batman. They they saw, hey, you know, they were influenced by whomever the directors or the writers that they had hired. Oh, let's do a dark version. Let's not be so campy and, you know, and silly. Some, some people thought it was silly. People at the time didn't think it was silly. They thought it was great. They thought it was fun. So in doing that darker version, you know, it's a whole different path. In some ways, if you look at what Marvel has done, you know, great I mean, both DC and Marvel have done great movies and stuff, but Marvel seemed to be a little more fun-loving. You know what I mean? A little less taking themselves so seriously. And I think that has worked very well for them. But the Batman movies come out. Warner Brothers done a great job. They're, I mean, you take $300 million, you know, and you can make a pretty great movie. Yeah. And they've had, you know, fabulous actors. People ask me, well, who do you think, was, who was your favorite Batman? I said, you know, there's been... Every actor that played Batman was a great actor, but they were actors. In my opinion, there was only one real Batman, and that was Adam West. And he was really Batman. Everybody else, great actors, did a great job, but that was just another role for them. Adam really made that character's personality. I like to think that I made Robin's character and that we left things better off than when we started, if you know what I mean. That, that was a whole idea. We wanted things to be in a better place for people than when we started. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, no matter what is made or has been made or will be made, you guys were always the very first ones. Yes, absolutely. And we, we really we took great care of, to protect our characters. There would be appearances where we would appear in costume and somebody would say, oh, well, take off your mask and or this or that. We would never do it. When we were in costume, we were in character. That's how much respect we had. For the characters very cool all right so we have one final question here from uh lupe another question from lupe bert's junk was considered too risque for national television at the time how did they conceal his endowment oh what a nice thing you think of endowment <laughs> if you think of some university receiving money right i guess it's a different kind of endowment well, my first answer, immediate answer is man was not built for tights, right? <laughs> okay, so just putting tights on in a very clinging thing as opposed to a woman wearing it, you're certainly going to get somewhat of a bulge. But you see, remember I told you that Batman was such a huge success. It was, it was such a huge success that, like, everybody wanted to get in on it. And at the time, and I think it was the third season, the Catholic Legion of Decency, decided that there was an unnatural bulge in Robin's tights and this needed to be dealt with. And uh, they contacted ABC Network and they raised a lot of heck and ABC got in touch with 20th Century Fox and 20th Century Fox got in touch with production company Greenway Productions. And finally, somebody came to me from the production company and said, Bert, you know, we've got complaints about the way you fit in your costume. I said, oh, come on. No, 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 no. We're actually not kidding about this, Bert. They're demanding that if we don't fix this problem, they want you off the air. Okay. I said, that's crazy. That's crazy. So 
we had people in the wardrobe department, these guys in the wardrobe department uh, that were all excited about trying all these contraptions on me, you know, various types of penal restraints and God only knows what. None of which worked, by the way. It just, you know, you can't, it's tight. You're not going to make things disappear, right? However, however, under pressure, they did find this quack doctor that gave me these pills. And I took them for about three days. It, it actually worked. But it scared me so much that maybe this could make me sterile for life. That it, uh, after three days, I stopped taking them and I used my cape to cover there you go. And, uh, you know, wherever possible. Now, there was kind of an embarrassing scene. We, I had a three-parter called the Londinium Larcenies. It was supposed to take place in London. In fact, the Londinium Larcenies. And this was a three-parter, and there's uh, Lord Fogg and Lady Pea Soup. And, and instead of having hench men, they had these hench girls. Okay. And this was at the time all of this was kind of going on, right? And so it was kind of common knowledge. Nobody said anything, but, you know, everybody kind of knew. So I would be doing the scenes and I'd be, you know, pulled back where I couldn't use my cape. You know, I'd pull back. These girls are wrestling and purposely rubbing up against me. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Bert. Didn't mean to. Let's do that scene again. Well, wait a minute. I need a couple minutes here. We need to break. I need to go get a cold drink. You know, I mean, they were making life really tough on that show for me. Those girls, okay, and and they know exactly what they were. They, they thought it, they were. They're all laughing and giggling, and, and you know, and and they say, "Bert, come on, you're keeping us waiting." I just you know, things have to calm down here for a minute. You know, let me just hold on. I just I, I need to get another cold drink and whatever. I need to go to the restroom. I, whatever it was, I could make up just to buy some time but that you know it, it did happen and it was real and it was i guess in retrospect funny but at the time it actually wasn't funny because they were talking about having to write robin out of the script this was like you know really i mean they were serious about this it wasn't a joke i mean i i i mean immediately people think about it and think it's a joke but at the time it was very worrisome because that catholic legion of decency uh, wielded a lot of power, and there were there were also um, there were these other groups that like there was this uh, Frederick Wertheimer, some psychiatrist in Germany that wrote that uh, Batman was the wish uh, list of two homosexuals and and stuff like that. I mean, there's a, a whole bunch of stuff that was kind of fringe stuff that made its way to affect us, you know. And people would ask me, well, what do they say? What do you say about this thing about the uh, Batman being the wish thing of two homosexuals living together. I said, look, I don't understand those. What's so strange about two guys who run around, wear their tights and live together, you know? And people would laugh and it would make a little fun of it, you know, and move on. Kind of like what politicians do today. Really. <laughs> what was the pill that they gave you? God only knows, but it it actually worked, you know, but it scared me. I mean, it didn't like do anything like, you know, 80% to train, but maybe 20%, 30%. It was enough that you said, geez, is there something wrong? I mean, that's not quite the same. Now, Adam had the opposite problem. Because of the way his costume fit, he, he was too flat in the front. So I used to tease him. I'd say, oh, you're going to go get those Turkish towels and put in your undershorts? <laughs> if you if you know what a Turkish towel is, like four times the size of a regular towel. you know. And I would tease him about that. 
furniture. But we had such a love, Adam and I, for each other, and we teased each other. We'd make appearances. Oh, I mean, at one time he put ice in my in my boots. You know, you know, because I, you know, you take during your break, you have time to take off your cuffs. He got ice and put it in, in my my Robin bat boots. Okay, and talk about getting cold feet. Let me tell you. All right. Well, I kind of got even with him. I got itching powder in his tights, and when he put those tights on, he's going like this and. Everything is itching and driving him crazy. I don't understand them itching. That's gee, Adam. I don't know it. I can't, I can't imagine what could have happened to cause that, Adam. I don't know, Bert. Sounds like something you did. And then we would make these appearances together out on the road, and I played all. We played oh my gosh, tricks on each other. Like for example, I knew that Adam did like to have a drink or two, right? And I knew that when he would go out on the after a Friday night appearance, that come Saturday morning. You know, he need to sleep in because he was carrying quite a heavy hangover, right? So I gave him a 50th birthday party when he wasn't 50. Okay, he was younger than 50. But I decided I'm going to give him a 50th birthday party. So I went to all this trouble at this big hotel. They literally had hundreds of, between the maids and the everybody that worked at that hotel behind the front desk and the bellboys and the, I mean, this huge hotel. So I arranged that this birthday party would occur at seven in the morning on Saturday morning at his room. Okay. They said, don't you think that the disturbing? Oh no, he's up early. He's up at five o'clock. You've got to catch him before he leaves for the day. No later than 7 a.m. So I, and there was a, there was like people all the way down the hall, all the maids that got off and everything. And they got the big birthday cake that the, that the restaurant made. It's a happy first 50th birthday, Batman. And they showed up at his room at like 7 a.m. And it was about 7 15. And I hear Bert, I hear the phone ring. Bert, I'll get even with you for this. I said, what? What, Adam? What's the, what's the problem? Bert, she's this, this big German lady with a guttural voice. She's head of housekeeping, banging on my door at 7 a.m. I told him, you got to leave. You can't. Don't d- leave me alone. I need to sleep. I have a terrible hangover. And she's kept pounding on the door. Gee, they have to open this door. We have to sing happy birthday to you. And she says, I open the door and he says, I think my breath knocked the first five or ten over. And, and he said, they would not leave until they came in my room and sang happy 50th birthday. It wasn't my, my 50th birthday. I took the 50 off the cake and I threw it in the toilet and flushed it. I told him it wasn't my birthday and they wouldn't believe it. So he said he'd get even with me as the last thing he ever did. But, but it was that kind of playful stuff, you know. On, and on airplanes, oh, that was one of my favorite. You know, here you're on an airplane flying from New York to L.A., right? You're, you're all stuck in that airplane for like six hours flying across the country. And I would send a special note up to the pilot to announce Batman, Adam West was on the plane. And it was either his 50th birthday or when he got to close to 50, I'd make it 55 or 60. And you know what I mean? And, and, and okay, and they'd say, oh, we have a, this is your pilot. We have a very special guest on our airplane tonight. You know, and the minute he heard it, newspaper come up and that newspaper, he would hide behind that newspaper. You know what I mean? And I'd see him turn around and just grit. It's like, I'll get you. It's the last thing I'll do. And I'd say, let's all wish Adam West Batman his 60th birthday here, you know, and in a great well, famous actor, 60 years old today. You know, and he'd be like maybe 45 at the time. And, you know, sensitive about his age already, you know, by that. <laughs> but, oh, it was that kind of fun things that we did and, and playful stuff that's, you know, that, that we just had fun. 
you know, and, and yet we were we did care about each other. And as he got older, one of the great things he did, I'll tell you, he did on behalf of our dog food. But he let me tell you what he did. We had a thing where we would make these appearances and at these big auto shows or memorabilia shows that we would go to, they would literally get have a giant room or convention part of the convention room where they had like as many as 5,000 people together and people would do panels where, you know, they had all these different celebrities and they would do panels talking about their show. So Adam and I would do a panel and I was be introduced first and I'd come out and I'd say hi and everybody's like cheering and there's literally thousands of people there. And I, and I would do the introduction of Adam. And I say, you know, I want to introduce you to the, you know, one of the greatest superheroes of all time, my dear friend and the ultimate Batman, Adam West. And people would cheer and Adam would come out and he's such a funny guy, naturally, just a funny person, you know. He would come out to the edge of the stage and he said there, he says, ladies and gentlemen, I'm actually just going to stand here for a few minutes and let you admire my incredible crime-fighting physique. <laughs> and, you know, people cry. They're laughing so hard. And then and he say, and he posed and he turned and people are just laughing and the tears are coming streaming down their faces. Say, would you like to know how I keep this tremendous physical prowess? Every morning, I have a bowl of Burt Ward's Gentle Giant's dog food. And it keeps me <laughs> in this wonderful condition. And people are just crying. They're laughing so hard. And it was, and it, that would set it up for a panel that all throughout the panel, he and I never discussed what would be talked. Everyone was always different because you had a lot of new questions, sometimes same questions. But he and I would play tricks each other very spontaneously during the panel. You, you see what I mean? We never planned anything. And he and the audience could tell when I would say something that was ribbing him, you know, they, they didn't know what the whole joke was, but they knew enough that I was getting under his skin or he was getting under mine. There's something that would be embarrassing if we went any further with the discussion and people, they, they just had like the best time. They, I mean, they, they had a chance to see an insight of a relationship of two people that really had a real respect and love for each other. And, it, and we made it fun. Yeah, it sounds like you had as much fun working together and making the show as we did watching it. So, Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we really appreciate your time. This was fantastic. Absolutely the best. <laughs> I'm not even sure how long we were on with you, but this might have to be a two-parter. We'll, we'll see. Um, so in <laughs> wrapping, again, thank you. Our audience thanks you. Before we leave, we want to make sure we get every uh, website and all the plugs, everything you want to promote. This is This is your moment. Okay, well, I, I, it's just that for any of you that have a dog or a cat that loves your pet and like to have it for many, many years longer, two or three times its normal lifespan, uh, we make a very special dog food called Gentle Giants. We make a very special cat food also called Gentle Giants. And we invite you to read about it at GentleGiantsDogFood.com, GentleGiantsCatFood.com, and our store is GentleGiantsPetProducts.com. And you can really... Watch the videos. See these dogs. I mean, this is the real thing. Uh, as an example, Inside Edition is a well-known television show. Uh, they came out and they videotaped one of our dogs, a dog named Tara, Russian wolfhound, who's only supposed to live seven to nine years. And they videotaped her when she was 25 years old. And the segment they titled, which is still on uh, the Internet, or you can see it on our website, it was called, Could This Be the Oldest Living Pooch in the World? And after they did that segment, Tara, again, she was triple her normal lifespan, 25 years of age. She still lived until 27 and a half years and lived a wonderful, happy life. And 
was jumping up in the air until the very last year of her life. So, you know, we, it, this warms our heart. And if we can help you keep your pet five or 10 or 15 years longer, we'll want to do it. So check us out, GentleGiantsDogFood.com. Our Facebook is General Giants Dog Food and Products. And, um, you know, check it out. Give us, uh, give it a try. My wife and I, as I said, don't take any salary for this. This is all about loving animals and making a better world for all of us. Thank you so much, Bert. That was, this was fantastic. Well, this thank great. you. I hope you, you enjoyed know, it too. I had a great time as we said on, on Batman. Mobile citizens. Holy formaldehyde, Batman. <laughs>